since beginning the book of Daniel, uh, I've had more than one person ask me, approach me and ask me, what are you going to do when you get to chapter 7 and 8 and following uh, the second half of the book where you see all of these visions that Daniel has, uh, these four beasts coming up out of the sea, uh, a ram and goat, uh, these 70 weeks, the abomination of desolation, time, times, and half a time. Uh, in fact, one person noted that they had a friend, I believe a, a pastor friend, who preached through Daniel, and in coming to 7, 8, and 9 and following, the, I think the pastor started to get himself tied up in expositional, exegetical kinds of knots and discontinued the series. Well, we're entering chapter 7 at this time. So if in two to three weeks we find ourselves all of a sudden in the book of James or something, you'll, you'll know why. But it is important to remember, as I reflected on that, all Scripture is God-breathed, Paul says to Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful Useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, uh, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, with that, we turn to Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. Let's give our attention to the Word of God. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, a third, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great or arrogant things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. A glorious uh, picture we have here. Frightening though as well. A tumultuous sea, raging uh, sea, four beasts coming up out of it, earthly kingdoms, uh, a heavenly throne, a beast burned with fire, a son of man with this everlasting uh, dominion. The vision here, the picture painted in Daniel 7, among other things, communicates the reality of conflict. Worldly conflict, political, governmental conflict, cosmic conflict. And this is the first thing I want us to see and focus in on. It's the ongoing, the tormenting problem that humanity, that we face as people, and that is living in a world full of conflict. And an important question that readers of the Bible and teachers of the Bible ought to ask of any text is what contribution does this text offer to the whole of the Word of God? In other words, if this text were not here, what would we be missing? Well, one of the contributions, one of the helps I think this text provides us is how the Christian ought to think about and navigate and understand a world in conflict. This text ought to give some shape to our countenance and our thinking about a world in conflict. Beginning here in chapter 7 through the rest of the book to chapter 12, God is giving to Daniel one vision after another. So the whole book can be divided in two, from one to six and now seven through to the end. If you look at the last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 6, verse 28, it says, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus uh, the Persian. This is basically a summary statement revealing Daniel has been faithful through the 70-year exile in Babylon, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, who laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, through the successive kings, the last king of Babylon, Belshazzar, the turning over to another empire, the Medes and the Persians, Darius the Mede, and Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus, Cyrus we recall, is noted in Second Chronicles, the last chapter of Second Chronicles, he issues that decree by the word of the Lord to allow the people of God to return to their land under Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. And upon their return to rebuild the walls, the city, the temple. So as we've moved into chapter 7, what's happening is that we're basically going back in time to Daniel's experience in exile. And we're learning about visions that God had given to him. And this vision centers on world conflict. And it provides us the kind of view and vision we're to have in looking at the world. It's at least an important perspective. Now, whatever your thoughts are on athletics and sporting events, some of us are aware that 
one of the most watched events is going to take place later today. Uh, that is the Super Bowl. Yesterday evening during dinner, it was mentioned, and one of our kids said, what is it? The Super Bowl? That's great. If you don't know what the Super Bowl is, and you don't care what the Super Bowl is, it doesn't matter. But today, two teams, I had to actually look it up to confirm who is playing so you can see how much I've been tracking. It's the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles. They'll go head-to-head this evening. I believe the Eagles are favored to win, but in a Super Bowl, it's, it's anyone's game. I, reason, I, I mention this for an important reason, believe it or not, and it is because the same way people view such a contact, contest that is between essentially two equal but opposing forces, really uncertain of the outcome, is the same way we can tend to view conflict in the world. There's two teams, equal in power. One is good. One is evil. In the illustration, of course, the eagles would be the good. But this, this whole view, spiritually, that in the world there's a conflict between two but equal forces, one good and one evil, we might call a dualistic view of good and evil. A lot of people, generally speaking, view the world this way. This was essentially the view in Babylon, that, that there was a continually recurring conflict in which wild beasts needed to be rounded up and conquered. And in fact, every year, the Babylonians held a festival celebrating the recurrence of this fight between their gods and these other powers. It was a festival they believed contributed to helping in the struggle. This kind of pessimistic disturbing and unbiblical view of good and evil can creep into our thinking. It can really give shape, bring doubt, fear into our lives. We begin to think and act with a certain uncertainty whether there is any supreme power over the affairs of man in kingdoms and nations. Well, let's step back for a moment. Chapter 7, verse 1, the first verse of our text, tells us Daniel had this disturbing vision of wild beasts when? The first year of King Belshazzar's reign. We have already seen in the past that it was this very time in the transition from chapter 4 into chapter 5, the transition from Nebuchadnezzar's reign ultimately to Belshazzar, that the Babylonian kingdom had then this downward spiraling change in spirit, outlook, and morale under Belshazzar, if you recall that, the beginning of chapter 5. Daniel saw the change. He lived through the change from a greater stability and godliness to that of a profaning of the things of God and a greater evil, including the king the political sphere. Perhaps some of us have felt a sense of that growing instability in our world or our nation over the years. Ungodliness increasing in the culture or world around. Perhaps you've felt that. It's not unreasonable to consider that Daniel had a change in outlook himself regarding governing authorities and the potential of evil lurking behind earthly governing powers. He's kind of seen here for the first time the the underside of world history and governments. 
One person, person called it uh, the Watergate um, view. It's like learning of, of the Watergate scandal. Realizing how the battle among leaders and governments can be taken over by uh, spiritual darkness or principalities, powers of, of darkness on all kinds of levels. Daniel's living through that and he's seeing that. Scripture essentially gives us two main lenses regarding this. Uh, on the one hand, we have a, a text like Romans chapter 13 where, where Paul tells us there is no governing authority that has not been instituted by God Himself and that they are servants of the Lord for the good of man. A very positive, optimistic lens in thinking about our governing authorities. And this should, on the one hand, guard Christians from the view that, that thinks all politics or governments and civil leaders are, are merely devilish, that the United Nations is the Antichrist that's starting to grow horns out of its head or whatever it might be. On the other hand, you have a text like Revelation chapter 13, a very sobering picture in which political government authority is depicted as a beast, like here in Daniel 7, rising out of the sea and devouring with bloodthirsty greed, a picture of the spirit of Antichrist. Regardless, though Daniel sees this disturbing vision of beasts and kingdoms rising up out of the sea, an important application surfaces here for us. And that is, though evil is lurking behind these powers, Daniel doesn't step away. He doesn't walk away or merely separate himself from the scene. He is remaining year after year in exile as salt and light. Daniel's faithful and godly presence in the midst of evil reminds us, this is my father's world. This is our Father's world. Or the hymn, God that madest earth and heaven. And when morn again, morning again, shall call us to run life's way, may we still, whatever befall us, thy will obey. From the power of evil hide us in the narrow pathway guide us. Nor thy smile be ever denied us the live long way. We, like Daniel, we walk the narrow way. But we do so at times amidst the rising tides, raging sea of evil all around. And your presence as salt and light in the world matters. It's not to be left to the next generation. We're to be faithful and present as salt and light in the here and now. But there was something distinct about this vision. Unlike the image of chapter 2, if you recall, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of that great statue. Remember, the statue had legs of iron, thighs of bronze, a chest of silver, a head of gold, each representing four kingdoms, likely the Babylonians, then the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. It was a dream that communicated the succession of one kingdom after another, and then that stone that would crush all of them. But this vision is a bit different, or a little bit different. This vision of the four beasts has an added element. Each successive beast or kingdom becomes more cruel. 
less humane. The first beast in verse 4 is like a lion. The prophet Jeremiah speaks uh, of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in Jeremiah 49 in this way. The first beast is likely representing Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But it still has some resemblance of man. It's standing on two feet. It's described as like a man. But as you move along to the second, like a bear, perhaps representing the Persians, the third, like a leopard, the Greeks, you eventually get to the fourth. Very good possibility. It's the Romans. Whoever it is, they are described as terrifying and dreadful, devouring, different from all the beasts before it. The most cruel, the most monster-like. It says, whatever escaped its great iron teeth was stamped out by its feet. And most grotesque were these ten horns, perhaps a picture of the empire's strength and influence, And then you have this single horn, some believe representing Antichrist himself. With this frightening picture and this very low, low point in Babylon's culture and world, maybe Daniel was getting pulled in and pulled down into a state of pessimism, fear, even depression. We learn later in chapter 10 that Daniel at times suffered from a a depressed, downcast spirit. He was no more immune to his culture than than we are. But in the midst of this frightening image in reality, a world that at times seems out of control, overwhelming, evil ruling, God brings Daniel, if you will, into the sanctuary. Verse 9. The vision continues. I looked and saw thrones placed. The Ancient of Days, our God, took His seat. His clothing white as snow, hair pure like wool, His throne fiery flames, wheels burning fire, fire flowing out from before Him, thousands upon ten thousands of angelic beings standing before Him, and a court and book opened to judge. This is not a picture of a God who's merely resisting evil or arm-wrestling evil. He is standing over evil with absolute power and absolute authority. His hair and clothing, white. What kind of people have white hair? This is a compliment. Older people. I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to get it. That's what's going on here. Oftentimes, wisdom comes with age. Well, how old is God? Yeah, He's been around a while. He's old. He knows how to sort out wrong from right. He knows what He's doing. The fire poured out. Picture of His power to enforce judgment. Right judgment. But notice also, you read through this chapter, or the first half of this chapter, as we have, the the beasts and the description of them can really grab your attention. But there's something behind the beasts. 
there's something behind the sea out of which the beasts come. Someone working his ways in verse 2. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The rising of the beasts are the result ultimately of the Lord in heaven. As Daniel declared in chapter 2, the Lord sets up kings, He removes kings. Or as Isaiah 40 declares, He brings princes to nothing, He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. The Lord raises kingdoms, He uses kingdoms, He blesses nations, He judges nations. And as we consider the unfolding of of history, or we peer into the events of of the world today, or our, our own nation, we're often looking through a lens dimly, a lens that is blurred a bit. I remember the first or second year serving as a a pastor, I was invited to a Christian leadership uh, conference. And in between the speakers would be kind of engaging entertainment, a Christian comic or, or artist. And I remember one particular artist, Justin Glover. He began painting with large like bu- whole buckets of paint on the on the floor began painting on this large uh, canvas and there was sort of moving christian music in the background and a minute or two went by and he seemed to be kind of flinging paint uh, onto the canvas and a brush here stroke there but i had no idea uh what he was painting and he kept going on and the canvas now is getting filled out pretty full and I remember looking around thinking, am I missing something? I, I don't see much of anything here. Um, did he mess up? What, what is this? And then at the very end, sort of at the height of the music, he dropped the brushes, he took the canvas in hand, and he turned it completely upside down, or rather right side up. He had painted the picture basically upside down. And it was a wonderful picture. It was a picture of a shepherd, out in the fields with a rod in hand, his sheep behind the shepherd guarding against these wolves. Sometimes things are blurry to us in our own lives, in our own world. Paul tells us this, now we see in a glass dimly, but one day we will see face to face. Our vision of of God's ways are at times blurry. They're dim. Which perhaps is why Daniel's given this vision. And just as Daniel is given this vision, it's why we are to constantly return again to the Word of our God. That that be the lens through which we are understanding this God's world. But then the picture becomes even clearer or, or brighter in the last two verses. Because the Lord is not only ruling in the heavens with a picture of victory over the kingdoms, but then Daniel says again in verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Son of Man was Jesus' 
favorite self-designation in the Gospels, used somewhere around 80 times. Surely, when he used it, he had in part this reference in Daniel in his mind. Uh, He mentions it, in fact, in the Olivet uh, Discourse. But important for us here is the fact that the Son of Man is not described as coming down. The Son of Man will come down. The Son of Man will return. But this is a picture of the Son of Man approaching and ascending to the Ancient of Days. This is a picture that should remind us of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, His ascension, His session, His being seated at the right hand of God with all power and authority and all glory. He has a dominion now, all dominion. His kingdom rules in heaven and is extending on the earth. We may not see clearly or understand well the the ebbs and flows, the pressing back and forth of of good and wickedness in the world, the powerful workings of spiritual conflict amidst nations, governments, and kings. But this is one of the takeaways this morning. The closer you and I are to this Son of Man, the greater the stillness and peace within our hearts. We're united to this One who rules above. When our kids were younger, one of my favorite playground toys was the merry-go-round. I don't know who thought it was a good idea to put a large metal heavy circular object with with large bars coming out of it that can spin at a a really high speed, uh, but made for some interesting play. But if you've been on one, you know the further out you get, the more pull and force you feel. I'm sure there's physics going on there, obviously. The further away we get from the Lord, the more we're going to feel the pressure and the force and the pull of what is going on throughout God's world. But if you can move toward the center, no matter how fast that thing is spinning, there is stillness. There is peace. So it is with life in this world in relationship uh, to our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Draw near to Him in worship. Draw near to Him in, in the Word and in prayer and fellowship. Draw near to Him we will have increasing peace and stillness amidst the storms of which we don't fully understand, but of which we know our God reigns supremely. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the preciousness of of Your Word, for how You give us a lens in which not only to understand ourselves and our faith, but this Your world. How we praise You for uh, the clear passages that reveal to us your, your sovereignty, your supreme rule, your care for your people, the protection you have of your people, your good purposes that you are carrying out for the church of Christ. Lord, help us by your grace and mercy to draw near that, that you would be at the center of our very lives. Lord, help us to help one another uh, in that. We pray, Lord, that You would, spiritually, that You would lift us up into heavenly places. Indeed, we have been raised with Jesus Christ, united to Him, 
Lord, that we might uh, see more of what you see. We pray that you give us your heart, Lord, and your mind. We pray that you would govern our thoughts. You would guide us as both the chief shepherd, the head of the body of Christ, and the good shepherd who has given his life for us. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.